Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. If you go into any bookstore and go to the section on business books, you'll find enough books on leadership to fill its own library. The problem with most of them is that they focus on how to get followers to follow orders, to enact in real life the old kid's game of follow the leader. Or it's often about trying to get inside the head of followers to understand what makes them tick and how to motivate them. But suppose the real power of a leader was not to try and motivate followers just to follow, but to be clear enough about articulating his or her own intentions in such a way that it became almost axiomatic for others to understand and want to follow. Suppose motivation came from within the leader and not from external forces. That's at the heart of the approach to leadership put forth by my guest, former U.S. Navy Captain David Marquet. David Marquet was a top graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. He commanded the nuclear power fast attack submarine USS Santa Fe, and since retiring from the Navy, has worked with businesses nationwide as a leadership consultant. It is my pleasure to welcome David Marquet here to talk about his newest book, Leadership is Language, The Hidden Power of What You Say and What You Don't. David Marquet, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Jeff, for having me on your show. Well, it's great to have you here. How did you go from uh, being a submarine captain to being a, a voice on the subject of leadership? Talk a little bit about that transition. <laughs> I had a very interesting experience. I came up through the Navy. I was really good at telling people what to do, so good that they kept promoting me, and they said made me a submarine commander. But there was a wrinkle. At the end of 12 months of training for submarine A, I ended up going to submarine B because the submarine, the captain there quit early and it was the worst performing, worst morale submarine in the fleet. But the wrinkle was, it was a different kind of ship. So I show up, but what's the structure? The captains give orders and the crew follows them. Of course it didn't work because I didn't know the specifics of that particular ship. Uh, but it took two weeks, the thing blew up and in my head, as a, I'd been a leader for so long thinking I was doing it right. When I gave a bad order, I said, oh, I got to give better orders. And now that was just not a feasible solution. So I said, I got to figure out a way. So I'm actually not the one giving orders. The team is telling me what they're going to do. And they're not even asking for permission. They're going to say, here's what we intend to do. You can ask us questions. You can stop us. But we're going to do this. And it was magic once we made that transformation. We had to rethink every ritual, every pattern, every artifact of how we, how we operated. And this was built around the idea that you talk about of intent-based leadership. Explain what that is. Intent is a magic word. As leaders, we think there's, there, we, have this, uh, we have these two objectives that we picture working orthogonally. I can get control and I get that by people come to me and they get permission and nothing happens until I say yes. Or, or, or I tell, just tell them what to do. But I also want ownership and I want thinking, which requires giving them the chance to make decisions. And I think of these two things sort of as being in conflict. I can get one. If I bias one way, I get more dis distributed decision-making. If I bias the other way, I get more unity of action. With intent, it's a magic word because you get both. Because what you get is people feel a sense of, oh, it's my job. I'm going to go to the boss and say, here's, I'm bottling wine. Uh, here's how I intend to change the formula for next year. Here's how I intend to change the, we're going to try out a new kind of vat. 
So I own it. I'm not waiting for my boss to tell me what to do, and I'm not even waiting for permission. But at the same time, we still have control because it happens before we've actually bought the new VATS. And we can talk about it. We're inviting feedback. We're inviting scrutiny. We're saying, hey, check these ideas out. What does everyone think? But, of course, this requires what? It to be safe enough in the workplace to be able to express those feelings. Talk about how it's different, for example, in a company where the leader, the CEO of the company, whatever, has been responsible or had a hand in shaping the hiring of those people that are working there versus a situation that you were in when, when you took command of that second submarine where you inherited the people and really didn't know the nature or the quality of the people you were getting? Well, I see leaders spending a lot of time on, quote, hiring the right people, which is important, but it's actually not the most important thing for team performance. The most important thing for team performance is how the team interacts. And we neglect that because we just, we just it's worth program, we automatically respond in certain ways. We automatically run meetings, decision meetings by discussing and then voting, not voting and then discussing. We automatically, when someone comes and gives us bad news, we automatically respond in a certain way. So what you want to do is spend time thinking about how is the team interacting? How are we talking to each other? It's as simple as that. When someone comes to me and says, hey, I don't think we should launch the product next week, this comes as unwelcome news, and your instinct is to say, really, what, why? I want you to be curious first, because that, that old play is being compelling and trying to get them to conform to their role in the hierarchy. Hey, what are you, what are you seeing that's causing you to say that? In the most new, now, you don't have to agree with them. You can still launch the product, but do it after you've heard what they've said. In an environment where things move faster today, or as you know, Mark Zuckerberg once said, move fast and break things, how does that apply? We need to make it easier for people to say, pause, I'm not sure this is the right thing, but we also make, make it easier for them to say, go, we're going to try something. The problem we have lots of times is when we launch into a new thing, it feels like it's an initiative, we have to get behind it, and it's about getting it done, it's performing. Versus it's an experiment where we're going to learn stuff. So if you say, you know what, we are going to change uh, the ratio of grapes in this, in this vintage, it, it feels like, oh, we got to make it work. There's this real, there's this real uh, burden of that. But if we said, hey, let's run an experiment. Let's do a batch where we change the, the ratio from 60-40 to 70-30. And let's kind of let's just see how it goes with the market. Now I've activated curiosity, seeking, learning, and it's kind of fun. And we never—it's never a failure. Well, we didn't sell as much. Okay, well this is what we learned. But and if we do that repeatedly over time, you'll still be in business a hundred years from now. It's if we make decisions thinking this is it for all time. I like to put an expiration date. All decisions should have an expiration date. In one year, in one decade, in one month, whatever, we're going to reevaluate this and we're going to see how it goes because that activates the thinking and the input of the team. To what extent does it apply in businesses where there's not as much face-to-face contact among the team, where a lot of it is, is, is really spread out all over the globe, or contact is via email or various other mechanisms? How does that change things? It's even more important because when we have face-to-face contact, I can read your body language and I can, I can 
I can give you I can give you a smile and a nod. I see you're about to say something, and I can encourage. I can encourage and make it feel safe for you to go ahead and speak up and say, yeah, yeah, I don't think this is a good idea. Once the further removed you get from that, telephone call, uh, email, it gets, just gets harder and harder and harder. So you got to be really, really careful that you're not writing things in your email that are saying, this is how to do it, and, and, and this is my idea, and you're going to comply, and then why didn't you speak up? Because you wrote, the way you wrote the emails made it very difficult for people to to question what we're doing. Is is leadership more difficult then in this day and age of email and Slack and what have you than it is, for example, where everyone is right there on a submarine, for example? There are a lot of advantages to being on a submarine. No one's getting <laughs> away. No one has a second job. No one, no one can opt out. And I call it a closely coupled system. We're all like crammed in there. I'm sitting. I, all you do as a submarine commander, you just hang out in the control room all day long. And there, there are about 15 officers and sailors around you. So when the engineer walks up to you and says, uh, "Hey, they ordered the wrong," you know, I mean, we ordered the wrong part. It it ripples out. It ripples out. And and. Everyone gets the word. You want to test how closely coupled your system is, just make a rumor. Oh, I think they're going to lay some people off. And then you'll see how fast the network works. But uh, so, yeah, I think in a way um, there are, it's harder with distributed teams. It takes longer because you'll say something. I was so frustrated because you would say something uh, and then and then a year later, you'd still hear people repeating the old way of doing business. I was like, I've been beating this drum for so long. That was on a submarine. No one goes more than 200 feet away from you. <laughs> so imagine what it's like, like in, a, in a globally distributed company. You have to repeat the message over and over and over and over and over again. You've got to paint a picture of what it looks like. When you talk about empowerment or collaboration, everyone's got polluted opinions of what that is. So they're like, oh, yeah, I already do that. But when you say, when you run a meeting, what I want you to do is vote first and then discuss it. Oh, okay, now I see what you mean. So this is why I think the magic is in what are the words that we say and what's the order in which we say them. Talk about consistency. I used to think... It's so frustrating as a leader to say the same thing over and over again. And then one day I thought, well, what if I said the different, something different over and over? That would be confusing. The team would be whipsawed. It's supposed to feel that way. It's supposed to feel like you're saying the same thing over and over again. It's, you have to maintain a consistent message. I had a poster uh, behind my door which had me and my dog. That's why I was behind the door because I don't want people to see it. I don't want them to think it's out of them as dogs. But the dog is standing. Says There are nine frames. Sit, 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 sit. Good dog because the dog's sitting in the last frame. You just repeatedly and consistently repeat the message, whatever it happens to be about collaboration, empowerment, teams, not being acting like silos, whatever it is. And then when people show the behavior, you you reward the good behavior. Don't pay attention to the bad behavior, because then you'll get more bad behavior. Reward the good behavior. Does it work across all types of businesses, all types of endeavors, or are there things that, that are perhaps 
particularly unique that require a different way to approach this? If there are humans in your organization, <laughs> I think it's applicable. We, we have yet um, to – I'm sure there's some place where it doesn't work, but the structure is such that what you want to do is get people thinking. You want to get people thinking so then they can take ownership of their own decisions. And people, there's a sense, oh, well, that slows things down in emergencies. I'm just going to give orders. No, the reason you're giving orders is because you actually haven't prepared for the emergency. You haven't thought about it. And people don't actually know what they're doing. So, therefore, you have to give orders. But in situations where you have the luxury to think about, well, what happens if this? What happens if the product fails? What happens if we get a bad batch? What if, What happens if... The inspectors come by and they find out we've got a tainted, a tainted bottle of wine. What do we do? Oh, we never went through that drill. Well, then, of course, you're going to be relegated to having to tell people what to do. But in situations where people have – they understand what we're trying to do as an organization and they technically, technically know the product, they can say, doing this, doing this, starting this, changing this, announcing this, putting this post out on, on – um, to the newswire, and you still get the question it, and you still can, can veto it, but you're not creating the motive force. You don't have the gas pedal. The team has the gas pedal, and you have the brake pedal. Talk a little bit about how this approach worked for you and, and, and how those that were the followers, those guys on the sub, how they adapted to this because it was a very different approach for them. So this is very hard for me. I, as a leader, I always thought I knew the answer and I always felt like I was losing time. If I didn't tell the team what to do, we were losing time. We were driving the ship in the wrong direction. We were delaying loading the torpedoes. We were losing time. But every time I did that, I was poaching the team of the ability to develop their own thinking. And so when I would pause, and these don't need to be long periods. I think take 10 minutes, come back with a plan. Desperately wanted to tell them what my plan was. You're building a decision-making team and they loved it. I was asking more of them because I was asking them to think and take responsibility. The whole thing about being told what to do is you have no responsibility. It's easy. Oh yeah, I knew it was screwed up. Boss told me to do it. So they loved it. We, and two things happened in the short term. Performance soared morale soared. Every sailor who had the chance stayed in the Navy. We had 100% reenlistment. But the really interesting thing is 10 years later, 10 of the officers were selected to be submarine commanders. Why? Because we were thinking, we were there thinking like submarine commanders. Normally it's two or three. Ahead of time, we don't say, oh, you're the CEO. Now let's train you to think like a CEO. We look at the organization and say, well, who's thinking like the CEO, a CEO now? Okay, we'll make them a CEO. Everybody Treat everybody as if they're future CEOs because you want to get them thinking like the CEO. And what if everyone in the whole organization were thinking like the CEO? How cool would that be? How hard is it? I mean, you talked about how hard it was for you to adapt to this in businesses that you consult for, large corporations. How hard is it to train the CEO to think this way? It's super hard. And, I, and we, with the phrase we use is act your way to new thinking. Here's what I, I got this tip from Robert Stevens, and he's the founder of Geek Squad. And uh, he said, do this. When you go to a restaurant, don't order. Turn to the waiter and say, you pick for me and don't play it safe. 
And this is a brilliant exercise because we're not going to talk about it. We're going to actually just practice it. We're going to practice, and, and it activates a couple things. We have to live with the uncertainty, uncertainty of not knowing exactly what we're going to get. Number two, we have to make it safe for the server to pick for us. And this is exactly what's going to happen at, at work. If you say, hey, I want you guys to come back with a plan for how we're going to deal with this new marketing campaign or something, you're – you have to go, well, I hope they come back with something good. And by the way, they're going to come back and they wanna, they're going to want to just mirror back what they think you think is the right answer. But for them to really be bold about it, it has to be safe. And so this is a brilliant thing to do. Go and do, so try it. And if, you, and if it's too big and too scary, just say, okay, you pick the drinks or you anything on page three or anything with chicken, you can bound it. But all these little skills will – be exactly what you have to do at work. Talk about the fear that goes along with this. You know, there's an old saying, particularly in bureaucratic organizations, that you can get in a lot of trouble for not doing anything, but you can get in a lot more trouble by doing something. Talk a little bit about that. Most organizations, the prime motivation is not to screw up. The best way not to screw up, of course, don't do anything, don't make a decision. And if you do, for crying out loud, don't put it down in an email. <laughs> so the problem is, the problem is when, we, when the mindset is, and there's trappings of this. If I go to an organization, I went to a big global company in, uh, headquartered in Switzerland. There's this big poster. The CEO looks like Uncle, uh, you know, the old, old Uncle Sam posters, and he's kind of his fingers pointing out and says, one mistake is one mistake too many. Well, this company has been written up as being uh, arthritic and slow-moving. It's a huge global company and being um, outpaced by more nimble. Of course, there's a connection. What we're told is don't make a mistake at all costs. What you want is companies that seek excellence, whatever it is, whatever excellence looks like in our domain. As a result of seeking excellence, we will reduce errors and we will reduce mistakes. But we don't strive. We don't say we don't get excited. Oh, I'm going to go to work and be less screwed up than yesterday. No one <laughs> is excited for that. So uh, all error. Think about these superhero movies. They're all flawed, but they're they're seeking excellence, seeking to make a better world. Of course, they have their. It wouldn't be fun if they weren't flawed. So, so that's what we want to do. We want to, and it's a tough conversation to have because then you'll get the person in the corner. But, but so it's you're saying it's okay to make mistakes. I'm like, well, no, yes, yeah, sort of depends. But, but the idea is our mindset is I'm driving to work. What are your people thinking about? Oh God, I hope I don't make a mistake and get yelled at today. Or today's going to be awesome. We're going to make the best. I keep getting stuck on wine. Yeah, I know. Wine, you're right. We're going <laughs> we're gonna to make the best wine ever. <laughs> How does it apply to really creative businesses? So we see two problems. There's some businesses, in, industrial or manufacturing, they're just stuck in the doing. And they're doing, 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 doing without enough pausing for reflection and getting the people who are doing the work involved in making decisions about the work. But we also see businesses that are stuck in – uh, like analysis paralysis is how you would label it. They're just thinking, thinking, thinking. They're not doing anything. So not learning. So what we need is to both learn. We to get the learning cycle. We have to have an idea, and then we have to actually try it. So oh, we're gonna have an advertising campaign. 
we have three. We have an idea. No, let's just have the one idea. Well, how about this? Let's have three ideas and run three different dummy websites and see kind of how it goes, and then we'll tweak tweak it from there. But it's always the interaction. If you didn't actually do it, you don't learn. So it's the interaction between thinking and then doing and then go back and reflecting, hey, how to go. That's the learning cycle. And that's what we need more of. And what are you finding in terms of this approach and more modern ways to look at leadership being taught in places like business schools today? Yeah, I... I think a lot of the paradigm is still leadership is about making decisions and, and, and telling people what to do. And uh, I just say that based on kind of the curriculum and the, the books that are out there, as opposed to leadership means creating a decision-making factory where the team doesn't need to be told what to do. And we let the doers be the deciders. So I don't think it's evil. I just think, we're so we we're just locked into this industrial age playbook so rigidly we don't even realize that's a playbook that we can control. This idea that, well, of course one group of people tells the other group of people what to do. Of course. Well, really? Does it have to be like that? Is that a decision we're making? No, it's just I'm just an auto. I'm just repeating what my parents did and what my, their parents did. And went, Oops, now I'm back to the A1700s. <laughs> come, back, come back to that idea because I think it's an important one, and you talk about it in Leadership as Language, that it is a kind of industrial-age notion that we've been working with that doesn't apply to the world today necessarily. All day long. I mean, it's fun to hear words like... A software company talk about having an all hands meeting, which is an old Navy term, or uh, like clockwork. Like, why are we paying some group half of the company at salaried and half of them hourly? This is old industrial age stuff, and it comes from this old playbook and this old idea that one group made decisions, the other group executed the decisions that the other group made. And even when we say, no, we want empowerment, whatever you label it. The words we use, the, ra- the way we run the meeting still takes us back to this industrial age. Now, the key was in, in, in the industrial age, variability was an enemy. If you're bottling wine, you want the formula and every bottle to be the same. So the organizations got really good at reducing variability. So when someone comes up to you, or, and says, well, I, I'm, I think we might need to put a pause on this product launch. Are you sure? You ask a binary question. That reduces the responses to two, yes or no. And actually, it's an impossible question. So one of our things is to ask, how sure are you? Start the question with how, how safe is it? How likely will it be? How confident are you? Because this invites a nuanced response. Oh, but that's complex. That's complexity. That's cognitively burdensome. I have to think about it. Yeah, that's the problem. We're our our brains are trying to shortcut and rush to simplicity before it's appropriate. So you got to wade into the uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Understand that before you make the decision. But of course, we shouldn't be surprised that this old model is still hanging around, given that it's part of our education model still today. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that. Yes. So the education system was designed to support that. So conformity, compliance, it's the right answer. Like at school, you don't say, you know what? 
Uh, here in math class, you know, I'm going to try this answer, and uh, if it doesn't work in a week, I'm going to try a different answer. Like this idea of testing and experimenting and improving over time. Like, no, what's the right answer? And so I think a lot of these things are going to are going to change. Uh, another thing about the education system is it's designed so that we're going to spend the front part of our lives learning, and then the back part of our the 20 years learning, uh, 60 years doing. Uh, but now it's maybe 20 years learning, five years doing, six months learning, another five years, uh, because we need to learn throughout throughout life. But it's it's not really, it's awkwardly set up to achieve that. David Marquet, his book is Leadership is Language, The Hidden Power of What You Say and What You Don't. David, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks. Thanks for having me on the show again, Thank Joe. you. Thank you.